0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. The Pixies have a new album out called Beneath the Eerie. They're deep into the reunion era now. It's actually lasted longer than the original phase of the band. And my colleague Andy Green sat down with the entire band recently for a long interview here at SiriusXM Studios. We're going to play that whole interview for you starting right now. Here's Andy Green and the Pixies. I'm going to start on sort of my dumbest question so we can go uphill from there. Miley Cyrus, she has two quotes on her body now. She has Theodore Roosevelt, and she has you now. So, did you hear about that?
1: I did hear about that from somebody. And then, subsequent to that, I actually read it Yeah, on my phone. Your
0: phone? Yeah. It was falsely reported to be a B side where the happening is on the album.
1: Oh, that was it because they were talking B. I Right. I read B side, and then I read somewhere else happening which is not a b-side right yeah although if i could just weigh in here i believe the couplet that was quoted right is from a section of the song the outro the long outro Mm -hmm. which was remixed just that section of the song Uh as a Uh b-side called the thing
0: right so it's both so it's you know but so how do you feel that your words are on the body of Miley Cyrus as a tattoo? You think Is that a strange thought for you?
1: That is something kind of sexy about that. I mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah.
0: I accept. I just love the idea that it's Theodore Roosevelt and it's you. It's a good balance.
1: Now what's the Theodore Roosevelt?
0: That's the In the Arena quote that, I forget the exact phrase, and that was mm-hmm. something about men who fight in the arena that they lose and they win, but they struggle anyway. Right. That, that idea. I see. Mm-hmm. Then is my head was feeling scared, but my heart was feeling free. My head
2: was feeling scared
1: Do you recall writing those lines? I do. I do recall writing them. I don't remember where I was. Uh I mean, I was in Southern California. I know that. Okay. Because it's kind of a Nevada, Las Vegas southern california kind of a song and we were all recording and, and living i think we were all living there by that time as well
0: okay i want to just pull back now and talk about the album so i guess joey so tell mm-hmm. me why you wanted to record it at a church
2: oh it, it wasn't my idea to record okay it at so at why it made sense then why like, it made sense uh, i mean it was just the timing someone picked it we really didn't know where we were gonna go you know mm-hmm. I did not but it was Picked the criteria for uh, picking a studio now is that it has to be residential. Mm-hmm. And this one had to be away from the city. So this was in the Catskills. We actually thought, well, we're we'll reiterating, but we were going to be at Rockfield Studios and somewhere remote enough where we don't get distracted from uh, as much as we love them our friends and family so we're just on work mode and uh, the church was i guess an added bonus to that hmm. you know it's a beautiful building oh it was great i went to the
3: confessional every day and <laughs> <laughs> drank the holy water no no it was good it was a nice environment all the equipment was set up in the center room which was the you know where they took everything out all the pews and everything in that whole area and it was just either new songs that we worked in pre-production for the year previous or songs were written there as well just going over the songs, track them just like we've done in the past. It was a nice environment. This was different than a lot of the studios, being residential as well, but just being in a kind of a dilapidated, I shouldn't say dilapidated, but it was a, a church in certain conditions was nice, and it had a really nice room to it. So the sound or
1: the acoustics. Charles, so tell me why you were drawn to the church to record. Well, I was not drawn to it. I okay. was ordered to report there. Okay. On by a who? a particular date by <laughs> Manager Jones. Uh-huh. And uh, I arrived on the agreed upon date, mm-hmm. I actually arrived the night before to a local hotel so that I could arrive fresh. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stayed at a local hotel and then entered into the swamp area where the deconsecrated church was mm-hmm. although it wasn't in the flats it was up in the hills there were certainly swampy areas and uh, there was winter time so there was a lot of fog on the swamp mm-hmm. and uh, mist might be a better word for it and uh, the area was not without its amenities though paz and i discovered a lovely little shop that sold delicious imported items from Europe and other places you know they had nice cheese and good olive oil and they made their own spanacopita which is uh. a big favorite nice. being a new englander in a new england band we like our spinach pie Nice. so anyway even though we were in this lonely kind of haunted kind of place we had good food that was nice and um you know i would say we were asking david about the day-to-day routine mm-hmm. i think that was a big part of it was uh you know making the coffee and figuring out whether or not we had good food to eat at some point during the day. Do we have our supplies? Kay, right. We didn't like to go into town to break away from the work, but occasionally one of us would have to get in a car or whatever and go into town to get supplies so that we weren't just, you know, eating crackers or something like that. Right. And so I would say that the atmosphere was fairly domestic, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Kitchen, living room, bedroom, uh, of course, the recording studio in the main church building. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the backdrop of that, behind the scenes, spooky little sounds, little sounds, creaks, little rattles, and things like that in the walls, and scurrying around, and the sound of hounds in the distance. <laughs> You know, so there was a lot of atmosphere, but we felt relatively safe, I think.
4: Well, the room definitely has its own sound. In fact, I think there's this one moment for Mark Kane where we put this, like the vibraphones and through a Leslie in the main church room mm-hmm. and just mic'd the room so you can actually hear the sound of the church right. and it definitely had its own sound its own vibe right. for sure
0: and this is the first album in which you weren't the new person It's
4: pretty relaxed on the first record However, the environment wasn't like this. So I think the environment, if anything, helped me relax more versus like the band. I mean, my first day of Pixies on January 9 or something, 2014, when we were starting our first tour, my first tour, Mm -hmm. instead of rehearsing the songs, we recorded song. We recorded a song called Women of War. Mm-hmm. And that was actually my very first recording experience with the band. It was day one. Wow. You know, and I think from that point we knew oh, this is going to be really fun in a couple of years when we're ready to make a record.
0: Right. And it has been. Right. I've seen you say, David, the songs, this album, are a bit more eclectic than the last couple.
3: So. They are eclectic. I wouldn't say more than the, the last album. I think all mm-hmm. the albums are, we pride ourselves that we think we can do almost any genre and do Mm -hmm. that so this is you know it's just another one (laughs) another album of of a collection of songs and i mean they're again they're all i think different dynamics as well as kind of different places Mm -hmm. as with all the other albums i think they're all the same i couldn't lump them all together or nothing like the other ones or anything like that
0: yeah so charles i've listened to the podcast of the making of the record i've never heard a breakdown of an album that Details. So what
1: compelled you to sort of open up the process? It was Jones again. Okay. I <laughs> <laughs> guess I had a certain amount of reservation, mm-hmm. but being music fans ourselves, we are not against music documentaries. Right. So there was probably some concern that there would be interruption or whatever, you know. Or it's already awkward enough to kind of be naked in that way, you know. Right. At a recording studio, your voice, and your thoughts, and your perform your musical performance is the thing, the very thing that you mostly get judged on, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so to have an outsider there, it did help that he was English. Uh huh. I think because there are a lot of people in our crew and in our world who happen to be from England. Mm-hmm. And so... Somehow that gave him a little. This Tony Fletcher, I'm talking about the journalist who's sort of in charge of kind of leading this podcast uh, proceedings. Mm-hmm. But so I had reservations, but I went along with it, and uh, as did the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we didn't really have any issue with it. If there was going to be any interruption or anything like that, we left it to Tom, the producer, to look out for the situation yeah. and to kind of like have the uh, podcast team, which is really just. Tony with various uh, microphones and cameras uh, in different locations around the studio area. He would have them back off a little bit, maybe, if we thought that we needed the space. So we didn't worry about it too much, you know? Right. And, and he was a nice guy. He was very professional mm-hmm. and knew a lot about music, I think, and the making of records. And so he had good bedside manner, good etiquette, right. you know what I mean? And knew how to act in that kind of a setting we didn't have to like explain hey could you not do that here right now right because it's disruptive whatever he kind of had a good sense right. of, of all that you know
0: so broadly speaking in the whole pixie's career there's been three producers. There's been Steve Albini, there's been Gil Norton, and there's been Tom. So,
1: Well, I would insert Gary Smith, who did the first record okay. with us, and uh, we would have to include him. Okay. And especially since Albini apparently didn't want to be listed as a record producer right. on <laughs> Surfero. We didn't know that. We all thought he was the producer because that's what the record company told us. And then- right. Right found out like a year later that he was pissed off that he got listed as producer. And we were like, wait, what? wasn't he the producer? Yeah, he we thought he was. was producer. <laughs> but anyway, he doesn't want to be referred to as producer for whatever the reason. But back to your question, differences between Albini and... And Gil Norton and Tom. And Gil yeah. Norton and Tom, hmm. Well, you know, I would say that Gil has a more of a uh, kind of a hyper, let's work and let's really work up a sweat kind of a personality. Tom wants to do the work, but he's very reserved in his demeanor. And so you think that you're just maybe waiting for something to happen, but he's actually kind of the wheels are turning in his head and he's kind of like very gingerly moving it along without a lot of kind of exterior energy. You know what I mean? so it's very Mm. low-key in that way. Albini, I would say, he was reserved also in not exerting a lot of exterior energy, but I I think his agenda internally was that he didn't give a shit. (laughs) You know, which is not to say that he didn't give a shit about his own aesthetics or whatever in terms of how he engineered or whatever, you know what I mean? So I think that he had his job that he had to do, but he wasn't necessarily concerned about the album or the (laughs) band or the songs or any of that kind of stuff so in a way his kind of more laissez-faire flippant kind of attitude i think in the end was a good thing for that record you know what i mean because the timing was good because we had a lot of naivete at the time i think in the band right so we were just allowed to kind of be the way that we were. And it kind of was really exposed by his more neutral kind of position, if you will. You know what I mean? His lack of agenda. So it kind of really was a good snapshot of the band at that time. And it left a lot of the kind of more fluid, rougher edges that I think a lot of people really like about that album. In terms of those three guys, just off the top of my head, that's how I would describe their differences. I would compare Dalgetti and norton in the sense that they're both british and i think that there is a certain type of british record producer that in their sort of inner child or whatever Mm. their main thing is they want to get the song that they're working on on radio one you know what i mean it's all about like BBC and sort of getting broadcast on that certain kind of frequency, that BBC frequency especially Radio 1. That's what's kind of what it's all about. It's sort of like that's like the ultimate or something like that and so... Right. I don't know if they'll admit that, but somewhere in them, that's the little thing that's really, I don't know if it's driving everything, but it's like, it's definitely connected to everything. Right. And uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's interesting, you know what I mean? But American producers, I don't know that they really have an equivalent or whatever. You talk on the podcast about how it's hard to find time to write songs.
0: You have five kids and you're always touring. So, how did you find time to sort of write these songs when you're pulled in so many directions?
1: Well, we did have two demo sessions about six months before the session near to where I live. Mm. And so we were able to accomplish some stuff there. A lot of good stuff, actually. Although Mm. I did feel tugged in two directions because it was so close to where I live. So I still had whatever was going on when I went home. You know, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why I like writing in the recording studio, which is kind of a crapshoot. You don't know when you're in that kind of high pressured environment and you're trying to be creative and come up with new stuff, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Maybe you'll do something amazing and maybe you won't. Right. And it's sometimes it's hard to have the perspective to know what you're doing at the time. Mm-hmm. So but I like it and I think one of the reasons I like it is because I'm finally free of other distraction. And I find it very easy to write songs when we're in the recording studio. For some reason there's some sort of like pause refers to it as the Pixies door. You know, when you go through a door, like when we're going on tour, we're going to a recording session, we leave our lives and we go through this other door and we actually become actual pixies, these little mythological our ears creatures. Grow and you know what I mean? <laughs> gonna shrink a little there's something bit. yeah, totally. Our there's something that happens. Expands. So to go back a bit,
0: David, so the band reforms in 04 but you didn't record any music for a long time. So during that time period, did you feel the urge to make new music?
3: It was very easy to do because, I mean, everyone wanted to see us. We were just doing shows and shows and shows. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, when you look back on it, I think it was 2011. At that point, from 2004 to 2011, we realized at that point we were going on our old, the old songs, longer than we were initially a band in the first place. So that was surreal and also an awakening, an epiphany. Mm -hmm. that you know we're a viable band you know Mm -hmm. this is what we do and there's more to offer and that was the push i think for Andy, cindy to hear right
0: and how do you feel
2: joey i
3: think i felt any urges at all Uh i think charles had that urge
2: to uh do something and the first time when we reunited when a band reunites as a fan they want to hear your old catalog that's what they want and that's what we knew they wanted it would have been really kind of futile for us to uh, introduce anything new it wouldn't have got less attention or something you know I mean we didn't need an excuse to go tour right we didn't need a new product at all we didn't Mm. need new recordings and we didn't need it for seven years and after a while it was like okay yeah maybe my thought is like Yeah, you know, what else do bands do? Right. Okay, we played live. We know how to do that. We also know how to record. So, yeah, I mean, that's what a band does is record. So if anything, it's a band now. Right, it's a working band. Yeah, it's a working band now. Now we have new music and play live and the new music seems to be very accepted i think mm-hmm. this album's going to be really uh, lack of a better word successful yeah so th- before you got the job
0: how well did you know the catalog
4: pretty well uh-huh. i mean i was growing up with it mm-hmm. i listened to a lot of music and i'm a musician not as well as i know it now right uh, but definitely well enough that when i got the call i was like oh yeah i'm perfect for this mm-hmm. to me it was oh yeah that makes sense.
0: So how are the first few shows? Did you feel intimidated or are you just locked into it?
4: Uh, my first show I had to do, like, inside to get to the second show where I felt a lot better. Like I said, my first day was really recording a song that none of us even knew. And we spent a couple of days in the studio making a new song, which was mm awesome. However, for me, I'm like, do I even know? We're playing a show. Do I know these songs? And so right before the first show, which was a warm-up show, I hear Charles doing some vocal warm-up exercises with a piano. And it sounded very relaxing. Mm -hmm. And I've never really done vocal exercises. And I honestly wasn't that interested in doing the vocal exercises because of my voice. I was wanting to do it because I wanted to think about something else and being in a relaxing space with a piano and just going la 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 you know and so i sat down and we did this vocal exercise in in unison and then i just all of my you know nerves or whatever went away and to this day we do the vocal exercise i don't think We've ever played without doing a vocal exercise together before the
0: show. So you just toured with Weezer. How's the experience of opening for Weezer? How's it different than when you opened for U2 on Zoo TV?
1: Just how did it feel different? Well, I think when we were touring with U2, you're talking about at the time, they're like the biggest band on the planet. Right. And then we were like this scruffy little band that some people had heard about, but certainly not on the level of U2. Right. So the people that were going to see U2 we're going to see you too right and they really were not that interested in whoever we were Mm -hmm. right so that's a whatever a very tough crowd very tough scenario where you're playing to these huge rooms that are only a third full or whatever and you're trying to make your mark or whatever so that's not to say we didn't appreciate the gig or whatever we did we liked the gig and they were nice to us and you know we played in the big room the bigger rooms than we usually play in Mm -hmm. so it wasn't bad or anything it was just a dynamic was pretty awkward you know what i mean so it was good practice anyway. but with weezer they probably play to similar size crowds that we do there's some overlap in the audience we've been around as a band about the same length of time as they have i think we've been around a little bit longer maybe four or five years longer so there was something about their audience obviously some of our own audience came to the show because we've been around for a while we have an audience so wherever we play, some of them are going to show up yeah. so we had some of our audience there so of course we had a lot of their audience there too and they would also either know us or would have heard about us right, right? By reputation so they were open right to really hearing whatever we had to do and so when we went on and there was always a third act who was in the thankless opening slot right and uh, they would kind of get the gates open so to speak but then by the time we got on stage the room was pretty full yeah you know what i mean so yeah that was a nice experience to play to a full or almost full room where the people were kind of if they had not heard us before they were open to it you know what i mean? mean? so we could go back to the naive place of the beginning of your career where you're Playing to people in a club and they don't know who you are and you gotta win them over, right? Yeah. And then once that period is over, you can never go back unless you go to an open mic night in some obscure town where no one's ever heard of you. You can't really recreate those circumstances, you know what right. I mean? Right. So this is the closest that you can get to recreating those circumstances where people are fresh, but they're also motivated to be there. They're not like waiting for somebody else necessarily. They're there to consume the whole evening, right? Right. So it was a great place to. We played a lot of our new songs from the new record uh, that we had just completed. Yeah. So that was a good time for us to break in those songs. And uh, anyway, we've toured with them a couple of times now, and we'd play shows with them once or twice before, I think. And anyway, we enjoy playing with them. Yeah.
0: And, uh, I saw the garden show, and I saw a few people that didn't seem to quite know who you were. Then you'd play Where's My Mind? And they'd be like, oh shit, it's these guys. Right. So there's always a few people that knew the songs. But didn't quite know who you were then they became fans
1: probably right right yeah it was, uh, it was a good exercise uh, I don't know what they got out of it Uh <laughs> From their point of view, I'm sure they got something out of us, having us on the bill. Right. But we didn't really talk about it with them. But obviously, yeah. they got something out of it because they asked us to do it again a few months later. And yeah. we said, well, yeah, sure. To go back a bit, do you think if the
0: group didn't go away for 10 years that you wouldn't be in the strong position that you're in now? I feel like I heard more about the Pixies like post-breakup than when you were around the first time.
1: Yeah, that's a theory that I've heard, I think, from Joey, actually, that mm-hmm. we've never really experienced the kind of comeback that we did had we not been away for so long the old saying absence makes the heart grow fonder Mm -hmm. might be applicable to our situation. And so in the end, maybe it wasn't a bad thing. Yeah, so so
2: your thoughts on that, Joey? Well, it just goes by that adage. Everything happens for a reason. You could say the reason why we're still touring now could be those 10 years apart, Mm -hmm. you know. That could be that. But during those 10 years, there was, after about seven years or maybe six years, there was always this rumor that we were going to come back and reform, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, obviously it, it never happened. so all these rumors accumulating. And then when it finally like, hey, they are going to do it, it just excited the people that were anticipating the reunion. Right. So that has something to do with it. I say five to six years because to me, every year someone comes up and says, I think you guys are reuniting. Where are you getting this information from? I yeah. think it's the blogs on the computer yeah. and all this stuff going around people's I mean, minds.
0: I mean, I suppose the counter-argument is that you guys broke up at the exact point that alternative style bands were starting to get MTV play and everything and radio play that you could have have stayed together and gotten huge maybe. So it's sort of hard to
2: imagine, you know, how it could have gone otherwise. But Maybe people thought that, you know, hey, this alternative stuff got too popular. Right. Pixies are out of here. Right.
0: (laughs) So, like, during the breakup years, did you think the band was gone forever, or did you have hope that it would reform itself at some point?
3: Oh, no, you just resign yourself. That's it, you know, resign yourself to the fact. Mm Mm-hmm. I became a magician did something else <laughs> so yeah
0: right i guess being a drummer that wasn't challenging enough to find work to be a like magician is even <laughs> harder well, I'm, in a lot of ways
3: well i mean i played with of, course, of course and of stuff course. like that but it was just you know that just fell by the wayside it was you know pixies were fun mm-hmm. and i saw her magic trick and that just changed my whole attitude so yeah
0: and you opened up you know a two gigs when the group reunited right you combined your two worlds
3: I did, I yeah. I opened up for the Pixies. I opened up for the Breeders. I opened up mm-hmm. for a couple other bands. I even opened up for, before we got reunited, for a Pixies cover band. <laughs> <laughs> and how was that night? Was that really... It was a little bittersweet, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Did you play with them at all that night? Did you no. find the drum oh, no, kit or anything? No, 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 I just did my magic show. That was it, yeah.
0: Did it take you back in 04 that the group was so popular when you reunited that you were doing two shows and some nights at some points at Hammerstein? I mean, it, just, it was bigger in 04 than it ever was when you guys were first
3: around well it was surreal i mean i didn't know what had happened in the absence i guess it was all the other bands that had spoken about us that we influenced supposedly that just grew the lore mm-hmm. like a coachella when we played there were a sea of kids that weren't even born when we were a band initially but they knew all the words of the songs and that was surreal right so that was very eye-opening and like what and From that point, we've been very fortunate as a band ever since, and we appreciate it, and you appreciate it much more, that now we're up to 2019, or even in 2011 when we did Coachella again, there was the same sea of kids. (laughs) There might have been those kids before, but there were younger kids still that were doing the same thing, and that's just been the way it is with this band. We have a very wide range of generations of, of people
0: Right. I think the moment, Charles, in the breakup years that really shocked me the most was hearing David Bowie do Cactus.
4: Sit on here, wishing on the cement
2: floor. Just wishing that I had just something
1: new. When I heard Bowie do one of your songs. I'm like, oh, God. I mean, no, I mean, I get it. You know I mean? It's nice when other people like your stuff, but it's not like even after we were broken up, we were sitting around looking for, like, validation or something of like course. that. yeah. You know when we were looking for validation? Before we played our first show. Our first show was a place called Jack's Lounge in Central Square, mm-hmm. Cambridge. And so we had worked up some songs. Joey and I had dropped out of school and stuff started this band David and Kim joined the band I don't know we had some rough loose plans about making a record or a demo maybe and getting out of town and getting on the road or whatever but you know we didn't know how it was going to go and we hadn't even played our first show but we rehearsed and we put together some song and then we figured out how to get the gig at the club and we finally got that secured it was a Tuesday night and we had the so-called headlining slot but it really was about like you better invite your girlfriends you better like get some friends in there you got paid in drink tickets maybe if you were lucky I don't know how they do it now in clubs but back Back then in boston anyway boston area what they would do is when you play a show when people showed up to go to the show to be show their id or maybe pay the two dollar cover charge to get in or whatever mm-hmm. the door man or door woman would ask who are you here to see tonight right yeah. and so they would keep count because there'd be three four five six bands playing at the club that night mm-hmm. and they wanted to know who was drawing you know what i mean and uh, who was not drawing because who were they going to ask back who they're gonna ask back on a friday night maybe right? right everyone's trying to make a buck the bar people they're trying to sell the liquor or whatever so we actually got an okay crowd for a tuesday night there at jack's lounge and i think most of the people that came to see us came to the show that night came to see us so the report at the door was decent mm. and we played our show and it's the only show i ever felt really nervous at. i remember yeah. you know that old thing where they say my knees were knocking you yeah. know they're like shaking in your boots kind of thing you know mm-hmm. that was actually happening to me. i remember standing on the stage walking up for the first time and my legs were just shaking so much that i I felt like i could barely stand up you know i I was really nervous but what happened was we played our songs however many songs we probably played like 12 songs or something you know Mm -hmm. and Everyone clapped, right? Huh? And they were genuine about it. And afterwards, when we came off stage and put away our instruments and stuff, people came up to us, people that we didn't know, maybe, hey, wow, that was really good, that was really interesting, that was really unique, that was really huh. powerful, whatever they said. And they yeah. validated us, right? Huh. So that was a really crucial moment. Do you see what I'm saying, In validation. Yeah. So once you receive that kind of validation, it doesn't matter who thinks that you're great after that because you got it from the people that matter the most and that's the right. people that are paying the money at the door. That's the audience. That's the people that really, 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 really count because they're just like listening to music. They're not like, they don't already got a bunch of shit going on for them. They just got some shitty job, right? right, mm. And they're just there like blown off steam at your gig and like, entertain me, man. Take me out of my reality for an hour, right? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so when those kind of people give you Validation. And those kind of people give us validation every time we play a show because we run into them in the back of the alley and the hotel elevator out in the parking lot where we run into these people all the time. They're just like, you know what, ma'am? I've had such a shitty year this year. You know what I mean? And it's like, that concert was amazing. That's the validation that we're really looking for. You know? I got
0: it. So back when the group started, the biggest bands were Poison and Motley Crue and the radio was Jan Jackson and everything. Just like, what kind of success did you think was even feasible at that time? When and there were no popular bands that were at all like what you guys were doing.
1: Well, look, I mean, we like Steely Dan. We like right. ACDC. We like the Beatles and the Stones. We like right. all the big rock and roll stuff that a lot of other people like, too. But we also like Lou Reed records. We like mm-hmm. whatever. David's a big Rush fan. You know what I mean? We like our own particular strands of popular music as well. And so... It's very easy to say, well, you know, I'm not into this kind of real ass kissy mainstream thing that's happening right now over here. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to sound like that. But it's so that it's not, okay talking about the opposite kind of validation we're talking to that joey was talking about i remember <laughs> when our first record came out it was just all available import only very small pressing you know what i mean but yeah that was a big validation i gave my notice when i saw the artwork at my job huh? i can't remember if i i don't think i was at the party but i remember joey was told me he's like i was at a party last night we lived near berkeley school of music right so there's all these kind of muso jazzy kind of guys you know going to berkeley school of music they're going to become musicians and they really know what the hell they're doing and then joey and i we weren't weren't in music school or anything like that we liked music and we wanted to be in a band and lo and behold we had like a lone copy we had one copy of come on pilgrim i think Mm -hmm. joey had it with him or whatever and uh, or somebody had it it was at this party you know what i mean that he was at and the record was playing and whatever the song was i don't know what song it was because i wasn't there but he told me the next day he said yeah some like muso guitar nerd guy or whatever music theorist guy was standing there talking to joe about how he's going to berkeley school of music and blah 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 and joey's like oh yeah well uh, i'm a musician too and um as a matter of fact the record we're listening to was like, this is like it's my band and he was just like being nice and the guy was like oh yeah but he's listening to the music and he's like yeah but that's wrong it was like <laughs> it was <wrong. laughs> and then yeah. joey was like Yeah, but it's on a record player and we're listening to it at a party. So, like, I don't know. Like, is it really wrong? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's wrong because it's like, because, you know, A doesn't equal B or C or whatever, whatever those stupid music theory stuff. Anyway, so that's like another kind of like different kind of validation. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, we get it that like there's some people running around going, like, it has to be like this or else it's wrong. Right. Right? And same thing with mainstream music. You know, a lot of times people that are fans of certain mainstream music if it doesn't sound like that it's wrong this this isn't right and it's like yeah no shit it's not right and that's it's so wrong that it's good it's so wrong that it is right and what's actually wrong is this kind of hand-holding catering passive shit over here that's getting all this validation you know that's what we're against not in a revolutionary kind of way like we want to like whatever you want to listen to your crappy music go ahead have fun we got nothing against that but (laughs) we're not really into that right
0: (laughs) so in the few minutes we have left i want to just talk briefly about where's my mind and the origin of that song I've read various things about it. You were in the Caribbean, and what sparked your mind to think, I have a song here about swimming around with the fish and everything? Just what sparked that? Can you? No, me I wasn't a- in the
1: Caribbean. I oh, was, you were But there is a verse, there's some words there referencing a trip okay. that I took when I was a teenager to the Bahamas. Bahamas, but, okay, yeah. No, I wrote the song in Boston, in my apartment, mm-hmm. and a girlfriend stuck her head out of the bathroom. She was doing her makeup. She was quite goth at the time mm-hmm. and so she was doing up all of her hair and her makeup and everything her name is Jean, and uh she stuck her head out of the bathroom and said that's a good song finish that one and she stuck her head back in the bathroom and went back to work and mm-hmm. so uh, that was like oh That was the only time she ever said anything like that to me. That's when I knew I had something going on maybe with that song that it should be finished or whatever. I wasn't thinking in terms of like, maybe one day it'll be in a movie or anything like that. Or this is the song that's going to save me. I didn't have any stupid thoughts like that. It was just sort of like, oh, maybe there's something going on with this idea. And that's how it is with all music. You know, if someone hears it or or whatever, something that you're working on, you know. It's kind of like if someone says, oh, that sounds pretty good over there. You're like, oh, really? (laughs) You know, maybe I should wear my hair like this more often. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, someone says, I like that jacket. You look good in blue. You're like, oh, really? Blue. Blue it is. And so tell me the future plans. Yoda just
0: being the road for the next few months. You're going to Europe, then to Australia. Mm -hmm. You're doing Sufer straight through when
1: you're in Australia. Is that the plan? We're doing one of those shows, yeah. Okay. Sydney Opera House, I think do you enjoy those shows to do the whole album yeah it's kind of like being in a theater production or something mm-hmm.
3: it's like riding a bike too because those songs are so ingrained you know older You know. So. yeah
1: are
0: you still writing songs are you thinking yet about the next thing or you're just still so focused on this new record
1: I don't really <laughs> write songs you know what I mean until like Jones calls and says <laughs> <laughs> you know maybe you guys are thinking about this next record and then it, when we start to get dates and we start to get bookings and you know based around recording then that's when it kind of that kicks in otherwise we're waiting right. for the call about the the gig
0: you know and finally do you give a shit about the Rock Roll hall of fame or not at all
1: i mean we'll go if we ever get asked but i do like ozzy Osbourne's response like you know why aren't you gonna go to your ceremony there and he was like because it's stupid right <laughs> but I, then he showed I, up <laughs> did. oh did he show up I yeah, like, yeah i he, still he like had a great speech response. he was emotional so, yeah i don't yeah. know i got mixed feelings about it you know maybe it's stupid maybe it's not i don't know Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, host of Rolling Stone Music Now. Hope you
0: enjoyed that conversation between my colleague Andy Green and the Pixies, who have a new album out called Beneath the Eerie. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.